0: Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, John Emmerich. We're here with Jennifer Garvey-Berger, co-author of Unleash Your Complexity Genius, Growing Your Inner Capacity to Lead. Welcome, Jennifer.
1: Thanks for having me. It's great to be here.
0: Jennifer, start off telling us a little bit about your background, your consultancy around this topic, and how you came to write this book with Carolyn.
1: Yeah, that's a. those are big questions. Uh, so... Um, my, I spent basically my, my whole adult life trying to help leaders understand how to live and lead productively in a complex world. And when I started this 25 years ago, it was kind of a fringe topic. And now it's, uh, it's, it's a pretty big deal. People all over the world are finding that their lives are kind of swamping them. And uh, they're needing new approaches. So my doctorate is in adult development. And early in my career, I met a woman named Carolyn Coughlin. And we were partners in a leadership consultancy in the U.S. And then I moved to New Zealand. And Carolyn and I, with a couple of friends, founded a a new leadership consultancy called Cultivating Leadership. And we've been partners there for ever and uh and i've learned a ton from carolyn about her specialty if my specialty is kind of inner and outer complexity the the way we grow ourselves to handle the complexity of the world and how to interact with that complexity her specialty is the body how does the body shape us as um as humans as leaders and how can we use the information in the body to lead and connect, and learn and live better so this was the book that is the perfect um, synthesis of both of our both of our work
0: it is and and for the listeners give an example of uh, complexity I'm sure it's it's very different for uh, different people and um, you're training I'm guessing senior leadership at, at, at companies but we all experience complexity now in our lives that's just the Uh, the craziest part about our modern existence, but just maybe to explain what, before we go forward, what complexity is, and we'll walk through a couple other terms.
1: Yeah, super. So we often make the distinction that the complexity theorist Dave Snowden makes between what's complicated and what's complex. Things that are complicated are tricky, but knowable. Like lots of us went to school to get good at the complicated. These are problems we can solve. These are answers we can get to. And once we've been able to solve those things, we can do it again and again. Like our taxes, you know, or uh, fixing our cars or whatever specialty we might have, you know, looking at law, um, looking at the precedent of some case or another, etc. most of our expertise comes from this place where we get really good at using what we know to solve problems that are solvable. Complexity is really different because this is a system that doesn't have solvable problems. There's so many interactions. And it's such an unpredictable space that we can't actually use our expertise and reliably believe that we're going to be able to solve a thing this time and next time and next time. If you raise one child um, and that child turns into a successful adult, it's not guaranteed that we could put another child in your family and you would be able to raise the similarly successful adult. Everybody with two children understands this. Most people with one ch- child understand this as well. Um, so there's a ton in our lives that that it, are these like entangled, unpredictable, variable, complex challenges. It's just that right now there's more than there's ever been. Because we're so interconnected and because something that throws a system off in Russia affects us in the rest of the world, all of a sudden um, our lives are profoundly complex. And so learning how to deal with that is pretty helpful.
0: And, And dealing with that complexity, and we talked a little bit before I hit record about Robert Sapolsky's wonderful book, Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers there are pieces of behavioral science and evolutionary biology here. So, and and this may be uh, what Carolyn brought to the book, but just talk briefly about uh, kind of the physiology of stress because that, that complexity you you describe makes you anxious and tight um, because you, it's not that same algebra problem you saw yesterday or the same tax return you did 12 months ago. It's always something new. And then it's two things that are new and there's, physiological effects to that. You have these hormone surges, which impact your cognitive ability and this tug of war that the book walks through between the sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous systems. And again, it could be a little different for everybody and how they react to that. Um, but it, let's get that out of the way. And then we'll get back to to your side of the of the story.
1: Yeah, for sure. This um, Robert Sapolsky's "Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers" is one of my very favorite books. As we were saying before, um, the this the thing that's fascinating, I I just find it completely fascinating. Is that humans actually have what it need, what we need to handle complexity super well. We have so many resources to handle complexity well. the The trick of it is that complexity? when we're faced with complexity, we lose many of those resources. So we can handle complexity well until we're anxious. Complexity makes us anxious, and then we don't handle it very well. It's like this incredibly cruel paradox. And specifically, as you were saying, um, our nervous systems are designed to cycle between times of threat, where we get really self-protective, where we get very focused, where um, where everything from our vision to our cognition narrows, and it gets us into what everybody knows is the kind of fight or flight or freeze place, right, where we actually go into a t- total shutdown. And then we cycle in, in an ideal world, we spend a little bit tiny percentage of our life there and a much bigger percentage of our life in the parasympathetic nervous system, part of our nervous system, which is about connecting, restoring, creating, innovating, broad focus, experimentation, thinking about the collective, the whole system, right? And and so for all of human history, we've cycled between those two things. The problem is that uncertainty, unpredictability, and complexity, we experience in exactly the same way we would experience a physical threat. Our body does not know the difference between a kind of cognitive or an identity threat and a physical threat. And so our body is prepared to run and to self-protect at exactly the moment what we needed to do is stay still and connect and create new things with other humans
0: right and when you when your body focuses on the fight and flight only it shuts down servicing all the other parts of the body it could be your from your digestive system or as I said your your cognitive ability your ability to, to, to reason uh, I, I was a the other book that this resonated uh, that resonated with me in the, on this topic I was given as a firefighter which I did for eight years and it was called uh, Deep Survival. And the, basically, it was a yeah. study of why under moments of stress, someone lives in an identical situation, someone dies. And I I saw as a firefighter, years and years of training and repeating a training. And in that in that very stressful moment, I saw the, the freeze where it just, yeah. came, someone, you could be looking right at them and talking to them and they, they, they couldn't hear you because everything else yeah. uh, shut down, all those other systems. So- we had this ability uh, genetically; it's in our DNA. I think, as the book says, um, the world is obviously uh, maybe more complex than, than it was. We haven't been around that long, um, so now what we talk about is um, explain the definition. Is that is that what the complexity genius is? You're dealing with complexity. It's it, we have the ability. It's our birthright, but we've kind of we have to get back to figuring out how to proactively kind of tap into those abilities is that what complexity genius is
1: yeah yeah exactly exactly there are all these ways that we're great at handling complexity and all these resources that we have the problem is we forget to use them in the moments that we need the most and so the question the book asks is can we shape our nervous systems and can leaders help shape the nervous systems of those around them in ways that are much more productive for handling the kind of complexity that comes at us all the time because as you said it it when we spend too much time in our sympathetic nervous system it can be instantly deadly as it was for you in your firefighting experience as you as you saw others in your firefighting experience but it can also be slowly deadly as it shuts down our Immune system; it makes us more prone to basically every possible disease, um, including pl- things like depression. So it makes our lives shorter and more unhappy unless we understand how to create the conditions to metabolize complexity in a new way.
0: Got it? Yeah. And, and and that's when I try to describe that Sapolsky book to people that haven't read it. I said, if your grandmother ever told you that stress will make you sick, Sapolsky explains to you exactly. Uh, why. Um, and so part of that complexity genius, part of these systems that you talk about, you have an acronym called GEMS or Genius Engage, Engagement Moves. And and, and and these this is what you're referring to. These are the steps you can take to kind of control your body and your mind and, and deal with complexity. Um, so let's go over some of them. I just picked a few that I found interesting. Uh, one is uh, recognize the action urge. Explain that.
1: This is, I, I feel like this is um, a great place for us to start because the the thing that your sympathetic nervous system tries to do is get you to do something. And we spend a lot of our lives uh, uh, doing things before we really understand even what we're doing. This this will be familiar to your any reader who's ever gotten uh, an email that made them mad and they found themselves tapping out a reply to that email or text message and hitting send before ever actually putting their thought to, is this the right thing to do? Or even I wonder why I'm so mad, right? Every time we find ourselves responding without thought, we know that we are in this automatic, I've got to do something. I've got to make something happen right now, kind of a place. And that kind of place is super helpful if the threats are simple. If you see some dangerous creature running towards you and you run before noticing that you're running, this is a-okay, this is allowed. Um, But if you see some... Annoying email from your boss come in and you hit send without even thinking that you've hit send. This is not a good idea. So the action urge is something for us to notice has us. Right? It's almost like we don't have the action urge. The action urge has us. We don't create the action urge. The action urge creates us. That's
0: the natural and reaction. Very
1: often it's the yeah. natural reaction. It is our reflex. And if we're dealing with a simple situation, we can go. But if we are dealing with a complex, unpredictable, entangled situation, we have to stop. And so just first, the first step is noticing. Is noticing when we are acting out of our reactive, um, stressed, angry afraid whatever whatever the reactive emotions might be noticing this and then pausing and um and trying some of the other steps to get out of that thing that's hijacked you and into a fuller version of yourself
0: so that that you just introduced i think that's another concept i I took a note on which is the genius of noticing that uh you've got this challenge and um so I guess there's two ways as a consultant when you're advising people that they can handle this. One is the genius of noticing. Do you ever put in kind of rules to help fight that, uh, that action urge? You know, I, silly story. I was a volunteer youth lacrosse coach for nine years, right? Little kids, kindergarten through eighth grade. And the league had a rule for parents. If you're unhappy with something that happened in the game, do not go up to the coach right after the game, which is their urge. They called it the 24-hour rule. Say, hey, I want to talk to you. And the coach says, great. How's noon tomorrow? And I've seen it work brilliantly the latter way. And, I, and, the other, and in the other direction, I saw why that rule existed. It was a recipe for disaster. Um, so,
1: I, I love this rule.
0: Yeah, <laughs> it's a good one. The 24-hour rule. So uh, do you do anything like that with, with management, with the folks you consult to, or are you just really focused on them controlling themselves without, without rules?
1: So sometimes, uh, sometimes, sometimes it, it depends on how much we are captured by this action urge, right? I have some clients who use the many apps available to delay the response to an email, for example. Um, you know, there are all kinds of apps that will not let you send an email for X amount of time. It puts it in a holding pen. And uh, yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, like if you're if you're like a, an angry email sender, you can put an app on top of your email and the app will put things in a pen for 20 minutes, an hour, 24 hours, like whatever you need um and then it will send it and sometimes it will ask you again are you sure you want to send this so these things exist for folks like who who cannot uh, who cannot resist this um more often and and always ultimately the goal is to be able to notice it in ourselves before it gets away from us um and not need to rely on technology to do this this is a a piece of what it means to uh, to be a growing human is to be able to notice, oh, this thing's got me. I need to stop. And sometimes we notice it while it's got us. Sometimes we notice it after it doesn't have us anymore, but we see, oh, geez, I was just such a jerk at dinner because I was so I was so triggered by this thing that happened, whatever it might be. Um, but to be able to notice it at any point and then kind of Claw ourselves back into a into a state that is more helpful for us. So, absolutely, the first step. And
0: so, right, you have you do have you have funny technology used to manage modern day complexity, which sometimes has something to do with uh, technology. But there is also back to basics (laughs) that evolutionary biology, that bit of physiology where you talk about scanning your inner inner world, your body, your breath, your thoughts. And your emotions—that's something you can do for yourself. And uh, there's another gem then that fits perfectly in this spot in the discussion, which is uh, practice arriving. And and here are are we talking about the very literal sense, for example, about mentally gathering yourself right before you walk into a to a, a meeting or something like that?
1: This has been one of the things that that has been. My very surprising, the most surprising, I don't know, very surprising about this COVID time is um, the the fact that we are so often sitting in front of our computers going from meeting to meeting with a click of a button means that we have lost some of the rituals of walking down the hall to the meeting room, grabbing a cup of tea on the way, whatever, whatever that might be. And What I was finding from my clients is they were spending the first 20 minutes of the next meeting decompressing from the previous meeting and they were working harder and harder and harder and people were experiencing them as being around a lot in a lot of these meetings but not being present at all. And so the question is, how can you go to fewer things, but be more present in those things? And a very simple arrival practice helps you put down what you were just doing and pick up what you're going to do now. Breathe into this moment. Remember why you're here in this place. And we have, you know, we work with executive teams and 45 seconds at the beginning of a meeting actually makes the meeting incredibly more productive for all the people who are attending it and that's what we need right now right we need to we need to be where we are because the calls on our attention are so significant so this is the arrival practice
0: and for listeners for whom this concept might be new and and it might sound very Eastern. I can't emphasize enough that science is catching up with all these practices that may have been around for thousands of years. And I keep bringing up that word physiology and how the, how the body reacts. Like you can explain this if you wanted to with science. The, the, the famous comedian Jerry Seinfeld, who I think has been doing transcendental meditation since he was a late teenager, absolutely swears by it as contributing to his success in productivity. Um, whether he's a, he's very funny, he's a great writer, obviously, <clears throat> but to be able to sit down and actually be productive, he, he compares it to folks who have never done it to plugging in his phone, right. As it's running out of batteries and recharging that battery and giving him a new life, you know, for creativity. So there you have, you have breathing techniques in the book that the the reader will very much enjoy and hopefully practice and then there's um you have a couple more the another which is the genius of of moving that i'm familiar with the breathing part the moving part was was new to me if you wouldn't mind talking a little bit about that
1: yeah it's one of the one of the things about the action urge is our bodies actually want to move right often what we do when we're really stuck with something is we write an email we analyze the data we you know open a spreadsheet, like whatever it is, your job, whatever moving is in your job, when really what your body wants to do is move. (sighs) Um, And your body wants to move every day, all the time. So when people are stressed out of their minds, one of the most useful things to happen is to sweat out those stress hormones, which is why exercise really matters. But even simple movements um, becoming breathless, even very briefly, will change your state and will activate a different piece of your nervous system. And this is what, you know, parents and teachers have known about children. When children get restless or distracted, you get them to run or you give them recess and they run around and they get sweaty and they come in and then they're much better able to handle things. Um, this is actually true for 50-year-olds as well as five-year-olds. This is our body's system needing more action than we give it. Uh, and this is why movement is related to all kinds of not only health outcomes, but cognitive outcomes, problem-solving outcomes, and you know just a, a stronger physiology.
0: And the third one, which will resonate with everybody and anybody. And I have a comedian friend right now who's struggling with insomnia. It's the genius of, of sleeping. And, and I think you'll hear a lot of people say like me, well, I can be in bed for eight hours, but what is the quality of my sleep? Uh, you have phones nearby that light up once in a while, or we're reading him or looking at the screen for moments, uh, maybe half an hour before we go to bed. Um, how do you talk a little bit about sleep? How do you, do you know how to, how we can get better sleep uh, without just lying there all night, worrying about the 8am meeting that I have to present at and is, and which is a compounding problem, right? You're sitting there worrying about it. You don't get a good sleep, which almost increases the probability that you do a poor job because you're, you're completely exhausted mentally and physically. Right.
1: Yeah. I, I think the message, as you say, we all know sleep is important. Um, the, the The message we wanted to offer with having a little section on sleep in the book is to remind people that sleep is a core piece of whatever your job is. Because we were finding, particularly now, as people are hybrid. Um, more often is that leaders were getting up to be on phone calls at three am or um, trying to get their whole team together, even if that meant that some people were up in the middle of the night or whatever it was, and thinking, you know, this is okay because then people can go back to bed or it's okay because it only happens once a month or and and when you really look at what sleep does to the body and the brain, and how incredibly critical it is, it puts it in a different place on your to-do list. So I work with my clients to understand that sleeping well at night is a key piece of their job. It's not a bonus, it's not a reward, it's not an extra thing if you're not that busy. There are leaders I work with who, who have the, the kind of sense that sleep is for the week, you know, sleep is for those who have easier jobs than mine. Um, and sleep is something I can just power through without. And the brain science on this is just shocking, right? We we die without sleep faster than we die without anything else—water, food, anything. Sleep sleep deprivation is. You know this extraordinarily effective torture device on purpose, uh, but we do it to ourselves all the time. And so, how do we how do we shape our daytimes so that our nighttimes will be more effective? And at first, it's a downer. I have to say, at first, there's a great book called um, Why We Sleep. Unbelievable book. Uh, and you read it, and you cannot you cannot be the same after you read this book. And at first, at first, it's like, "Oh, oh no, Like this is such a bummer because, like you have to watch the last time you have caffeine is really early in the day, or maybe you give it up, and you the last time you have alcohol is really early in the day, or maybe you give that up a lot, you know there are all kinds of things that it calls on you to do that are really unfun, and then you start to sleep and you need caffeine and alcohol less." And uh, and suddenly the world opens up for you, and your brain becomes more healthy. It's extraordinary.
0: Yeah, I I, I turned away from the screen to write that uh, title down because I'm going to get it. And you describe something in a slightly different way that I uh, that I have uh, described to some ambitious, high performing athletes I've worked with. Very similar to a high performing executive, I say that things like sleep and diet and taking care of yourself aren't differentiators. Aren't differentiators they are just the price to, if you want to compete at this level, just assume everyone's doing it and then you can find another way uh, to differentiate yourself. It's, it's, uh, it's not an option. And now we'll, we'll get a little, I think, skewed towards uh, your world a little bit. I only know that because I put in parentheses, Jennifer, it says, uh, emotions are the new facts. And this is, this is also something you you hear a little bit about and, and especially in the self-help arena, which is, Emotions are are choices uh we're making, but also the most difficult to control I think so what do you teach your uh, your clients about emotions and um, this natural instinctive state of mind coming from your circumstances and relationships with others but I, I guess it's about how we control our emotions for for the benefit of our own productivity. <laughs>
1: Yeah, so I might say it a little bit differently. I would say there are, there are two main messages. I think uh, in our book, the first one is we 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 ignore emotions at our peril. There are still. I was talking to a leader yesterday who said, "You know, this emotional stuff that people come to me with is a waste of time." What I'm about, I'm an executive. What I'm on about is facts. Bring me a fact or don't bring it to me at all. And I I completely understand where that comes from and why it would be so delightful if it were a good idea, right? Because facts are so nicely quiet. They stand still. You know, we we can maneuver and manipulate them. We can come to conclusions about them. They make sense. Unfortunately sorry there's a very big truck going by okay. we live in the in the countryside and there's a this is harvest time and there are tractors going down the little road we live on um emotions are actually if if what you are is operating in some kind of social system any system with humans in it like a family or a neighborhood or a business or a dry cleaning company like whatever it is um You have to deal with emotions as though they were facts because in a complex system with humans in it, uh, we are much more driven by emotions than we are by facts. And so this question of, can I make sense of them? Can I gather these data and can I use them in decision-making as opposed to, can we get rid of them? Can we scrub them out? Can we think of them as noise and eliminate the noise? You know, I've had people say, we're doing, you know, we we're doing job cuts and people are becoming hysterical and it's ridiculous because we're cutting 1% and we're only cutting here. And yet people in this completely other place are anxious and we keep telling them, don't be anxious. Okay. But people are anxious, right? Like, like telling them not to be anxious is completely, it's, it's not only without value, it's harmful. Um, they are anxious. Okay, that's really useful data about your system. You're only cutting 1% and you're cutting it over here and yet it's contagious all through the system. What's going on there? This is a really interesting question to dig into instead of a wish that it would just go away. It shows you things about connections in your organization. It shows you things about culture. It shows you things about the way information moves. Whatever it is, super helpful. So this is the first thing I would say is when you're dealing with the world out there, To pay attention to data as information, to pay attention to emotions as data, as powerful information. And then when you're dealing with the world in here, I don't think we can control our emotions, but I think we can learn from them. And I think we can create the conditions to shape them. So one of the things to notice is the action urge is often come Uh, is often brought to us because we are stressed we are anxious we're angry we're afraid and what we think is that guy's a moron but actually the emotion is i'm afraid i'm afraid and if we could recognize that in ourselves we could be learning from it instead of thinking oh that guy's a moron we could be thinking, "Oh wow, something happened just now that made me afraid." And when I'm afraid, I lash out in these angry, blaming ways. That's very interesting. And then we can also create the conditions to experience positive emotions more often. This has been this was one of the um, one of the groundbreaking discoveries of this book for me as we were doing this research is that so much of what we think of as a kind of positive, pleasant emotions around us, we think, oh, I wish I had a life that led to that. Oh, I wish I had more laughter in my life, but my friends aren't funny. My work isn't funny. My family isn't funny. Like there's nothing funny about my life. And so I don't have very much laughter in my life. Actually, what neurologists find is that laughter is almost not at all about what's funny. Laughter is about um, whether we are trying to make a social connection with somebody. Laughter is almost all socially connective. And so how do we create conditions for us to laugh more often in a connecting way? Not because things are hysterical, not because we got a new set of friends, not because we're friends with Jerry Seinfeld or the stand-up comedians that you you are friends with, um, but because we understand that laughter is a lubrication system for our social world, and therefore, we'll laugh more easily.
0: And that's a perfect transition to the subject matter that I was fascinated with in the book, this concept of thinking of the world in ecosystems. Now we're going from ourself self um, to our interactions with the people around us, but to leave emotions for a second, again, yeah, not controlling emotions, but use the word recognizing and then having the tools to deal with it. So one gem that will transition us to this outside world is um, this concept of which parts of me are hooked. Um, What is that? And the the triggers kind of emphasize outside, hooks are are inside. I don't want, again, I don't want to uh, communicate it incorrectly, um, our emotions are constructive. You could explain that that hook concept a little bit and then we'll get into how we work in, in groups and, and work better.
1: Yeah, one of the things we're always trying to do with our clients is to move from a place of closed down, right? The sympathetic nervous system is quite closed down. where this is what this narrow focus does and move to a space of openness and curiosity. This is what the parasympathetic nervous system offers us, and it is where most innovation is found in this space of openness um, and complexity. Requires a lot of innovation. So, the this what part of me is hooked here is is a useful mm, like little doorway from certainty and often blame. Like, oh, I just had this interaction with a coworker and. That coworker is enraging, and that guy doesn't know what he's doing, and I need to send an email to his boss to say, this guy is a disaster, to uh, a question about what's going on inside me. Oh, that's really interesting. I'm just coming off of that meeting, and look at how angry I am. You know, we were talking about, uh, like, our, the, our email platform and I became enraged as we talked about our email platform. That's fascinating because we he was not threatening the lives of my children, right? Like the thing that happens at work is, you know, somebody has a different disagreement about how to spend budget, right? This is, this is not an existential threat. This is, a, you know, it's a problem that needs to be solved. It's not an unimportant problem, but it's not... Uh, it, it's not obvious that we should be shaking with anger at the end of a meeting like that. And yet a lot of my clients spend a lot of their time shaking with anger. Uh, and so this, this question we ask is like, what part of me was hooked by that? What thing that I care about, what value that I have, what thing am I protecting? Like, can I actually go inside me and say, Oh, the thing that's ri- at risk for me if we change our email platform is actually I stick my reputation on this one when it came in and I stood up for it because I thought it would have all these advantages. And now this person is telling me that it's got way more disadvantages and my reputation is on the line here. It feels to me like my reputation is on the line. That's interesting. And even just engaging in that question changes our physiology because it changes us from focused outside and angry to focused inside and curious. Nobody's to blame. There might be blame. We might get to that later. But in this moment, in order to prepare my whole self to have the right kind of conversation, I can look inside with curiosity and say, oh, that's really interesting. That's an important part of me. It's not all of me. It's an important part of me. I need to listen to it but I don't need for it to be driving me necessarily.
0: Right. And now let's jump to the the, the group dynamic. And I use the word in my notes ecosystem a, a few times. I have no idea if that's me imparting my background and bias and, and recognizing things, or you guys use the word in the book, but it was very uh, interesting for me to read about uh we we've been talking about the complexity within our own lives and now we're going to talk about the complexity like system and, and the with working with others and that the a big difference in how well things go or not is the number and nature of connections among and between individuals rather than just the legendary excellence of one particular individual uh how do you help companies create what i'll call again that sustainable ecosystem where again we i use that word because it's, it's true in nature right biodiversity makes a more sustainable system uh, a, a pure breed dog is more likely to die young of uh, very specific illnesses on that breed because of the lack of diversity and then your mutt lives to be 20 years old so uh talk a little bit about that that group dynamic um and that complex system and how um, diversity and and uh, and opinions and those uh, individuals working together. How how this book helps that function, if you will.
1: Yeah. So you put a lot in your question. I'll, yeah. I'll sorry, that that was,
0: that was a lot.
1: Uh, uh, but it's uh, as you say, it's a very enmeshed question, right? Like there, there are a lot of things going on when we start to think about us in groups. And one of them is our individual psychology, which prefers things that are like us. It prefers easy. It prefers simple. It prefers, um, you know, I, I will automatically prefer somebody who looks and sounds and thinks like me than somebody who's different than me. And it prefers to um, to imagine that individuals are the most important thing. So if I have a, a big problem, the thing I want is the smartest people on the problem. When actually everything we know about, yes, ecosystems, also organizations, also teaming, also creativity, all of this says that the thing that matters most is diversity. Right? It's not the easiest diversity, but it is necessary because if you have five people who think the same, you've got basically one person, right? right? This, is, this is what you got. Um, if you have five people who think really differently, you can scan a much bigger system. You can come up with much more interesting solutions. Uh, and it's our connectivity. Because if you have five people who could scan really well, but they don't speak well together are not connected to each other, they don't trust each other, then you might as well just have one person after all. You have four miserable people and maybe a miserable leader. Um, so the, the question is, how can we understand and be in diversity in a new way, uh, which I think is a, is a challenge for all of us to, um, to rise to? And also, how can we think about the connections we have with others at work? One of the things COVID showed us is that when we are not connected at work, we really lose a ton of motivation, creativity, um, passion. Uh, And the leaders I work with found not only were they running on fumes, but the solutions that were arising from their teams were just not as good as they had been in the past. And productivity went productivity went down even as hours worked went up. Uh, and so this is the wrong direction. But when we are feeling connected to one another, and when we are feeling like we can harvest the diversity instead of be sort of swamped by it, we can do unbelievable things and it's intensely um, you know, it's intensely good for our bodies and it's intensely good for our solutions, and it also is just more fun.
0: Yeah, it, it's fascinating. I'm I can't believe it's been two and a half years, you know, since COVID lockdown started, at least here in, in the US. And After about a year, there were some, you know, I don't know how scientific they were, but there were studies, quote unquote, claims that individual productivity was rising. You know, this people were more productive in this work from home environment. Wouldn't it be fascinating if somehow we learned when all this data comes in and someone looks back and says, yeah, it's really weird. Individual productivity went up, but total company productivity went down. You know, and then yeah, yeah it's um, uh, time. Time will tell. And so, perfect again. Transition The subtitle of the book is growing your inner, inner capacity to lead. Bring coming bring this back to to leadership specifically, and and you, you talk very openly how leadership is is loving as one of the sections of the book is called, and uh, what this means now to uh, the head of the company, the head of the project the person that walks into that meeting and it's their meeting. um, How do, uh, how does, how do these tools, what tools do they need to take away? And I don't mean to lump again, a ton of things in one question. I'm actually intentionally trying to be broad so you can take it where you think the listeners um, would benefit most. So go for
1: it. (laughs) Thank you. Thanks so much, John. Yeah. I think the, the message we want to leave us with, because we're all leading something, right? We're we're all enacting leadership in some way in our lives, um, is that we can create some of the weather in our ecosystem, right? We can intentionally shape and shift what happens in a meeting, around the dinner table for our families, uh, in the morning when we're getting ready for getting everybody out to work and school. We, We can think about the conditions we're creating, and we can on purpose create the conditions for things to go better. And we often think we we kind of need to deal with what's served up to us. But in human systems, emotions, connections, laughter, curiosity, all of these are, um, are things we can contribute to or things we can kill off. And a lot of our organizations and a lot of our families kill off these things, not because they want to kill them off, but because they don't remember that they're critical. They don't remember that love and connection is critical to to a flourishing life and to having teams that trust each other and will go the extra mile together. And so they don't have time for the love and connection part and they just get to business and they find that. The connection decreases, the teams stop trusting each other and their best talent goes, right? Why was that? Because they were working too hard because we didn't pay them enough? No, because they didn't find meaning and connection in their work. And top talent goes when they don't find meaning and connection in their work. And so this, this idea that leaders are creating the conditions for others to thrive, and for others to bring their biggest selves to work, I think is uh, something I would like us all to think about more. We think about what we're doing to the environment and how what we're doing heats up the planet. But do we think about what we're doing in a meeting when we come in so pissed off From the last meeting, that we sit there scowling at the beginning of this meeting, forgetting even what this meeting's about. Well, that creates the conditions for that meeting to be a little growlier, a little more frightening, a little bit less pleasant, less productive than it would have been otherwise. Do we think about how we're creating the conditions from the way we um, encourage people to spend their time, the way we encourage people to think about our mission? all all these questions about how do we how do we bring what is spectacular about being fully human into our workplaces, more specifically into our families? How do we use the best of our humanity to help us evolve so we can handle the challenges that we face right now? This is the, this is the core challenge of the book.
0: And, and you, you, again, th- this book in, touches on so many different things that are being supported elsewhere in the world. So you bring so much great research together. The one thing you talked about uh, is showing up more and more again. It isn't about compensation or necessarily um, may, that may be down the list, working from home flexibility, also somewhere on the list. But that finding meaning in one's work is uh, the one that has the the highest direct positive correlation with With happiness and we just spend so much time working out of our waking hours uh it's of course now it seems intuitive but it hasn't had any attention paid to it in a long time so that is a a big role for the leader to to focus on is to make sure that people are appreciated are finding meaning in their work and um and that you recognize them i guess as simple as that is um is there anything else Jennifer that you want uh readers to think about to pique their interest that uh, someone smarter than me would have made sure to to ask before they let you get back to your beautiful french countryside?
1: I would never never imagine that this was possible. Um but I guess the thing that I would want to leave people with is the idea that this is quite a hopeful book. Um it it helps us understand that the challenges we face are addressable. Um, But they're only addressable if we change the way we think about challenges and we change the way we think and relate to ourselves as humans. Um, But actually doing that change is kind of great. So um, we we often think we have to choose between uh, pleasure and effort or pleasure and the outcome of work. Um, And what all of my work has convinced me is that when we choose between them, we get ourselves in trouble. And when we instead craft our lives in ways that take advantage of the greatness of our humanity, this is when we bring out the best and we can unleash what's possible for us and for others.
0: I love that final message. Don't despair. The tools are out there. In fact, a lot of them you were born with. You just have to realize that and take comfort in it and then go out and use them. Jennifer Garvey-Berger, co-author of Unleash Your Complexity Genius, Growing Your Inner Capacity to Lead. Thank you for your time today.
1: Thank you so much for your great questions.